I'm speaking with Dan Handelman, Portland Cop Watch. Um, and I wanted to ask you first, uh, just what has your personal experience been with um, PPA and City of Portland bargaining sessions? Well, uh, we were not included in any way in the bargaining sessions in the first decade or so. And then sometime in the 2000s, they decided to open up some of the bargaining sessions every other session um, to the public. And what turned out happened was that they did most of the bargaining about things the public was interested in, like oversight and accountability, in the private sessions and the stuff about you know wages and vacation time, things like that, which are interesting and you know impact us as taxpayers and so forth, but not one of the reasons that we're involved as a police accountability group. So they did all that behind closed doors at the PPA headquarters, and that happened in two two separate iterations of the negotiations. Then in 2016, uh, we were working with other organizations throughout the time, but um, at, at, in that particular year, we worked with the NWCP and the AMA Coalition for Justice and Police Reform. We sent a letter to City Council in August uh, anticipating the June uh, 2017 expiration date and said we would like to make sure that you include these important concepts when you're negotiating with the police association. Uh, and the next month, the finished contract was presented to the city council to vote on because they had already, Charlie Hales had already started the negotiations and completed them unbeknownst to us when we were drafting up the letter. This was way before the contract was even going to expire. And that by this time, you may remember, uh, Ted Wheeler was elected in the primary as the mayor of Portland and so he was sitting back and letting Hales do all this heavy lifting, so to speak. Uh, and Hales made these negotiations, um, and that led to a, a big, um, a big kerfuffle in City Hall, which I'm sure we're going to talk about later. But um, so that that entire session was closed to the public. Uh, and then last year, they set up uh, to have public negotiations every other session again. Uh, had two public sessions where there were hammering out ground rules, one public session or one private session at the police association headquarters where we and other allies held a picket line outside their headquarters and then shut the whole thing down. Um, and somehow or other, even though the rules, the ground rules very clearly stated every other session in public and then every other other is private, somehow they negotiated between that last closed door session and the early July to finalize that contract, which was extended for a year, and that's why there's a new round of negotiations going on now. Even in those earlier years when you did not have any access to the actual negotiations themselves, you were kind of regularly, um, I think, it was, it was wrapping back, was that the... The, uh, the wrapping back is the, the um, People's Police Report's back page article about the Police Association's newsletter. So you've been a, a long time uh, sort of observer of the police union and the Portland Police Association um, as the official name of it. Um, what what have your observations of the union itself and the bargaining process to the extent you've been able to see it? What has that shown you about the relationship and the relative power between the city and its police union when it comes to um you know, making demands, especially like people have made over the years to get rid of the 48-hour rule and things like that. 
Well, that's a, a, an interesting example because you know, there have been many demands that the public's made for years, including wanting there to be a civilian oversight body that can investigate deadly force. And that is specifically written to the contract as something that our current oversight system, the Independent Police Review, is not allowed to do. Uh, but the 48-hour rule was also something that we we were demanding to get rid of. Um, there were several uh, consultants who said that that is not good policy, that in fact, because officers are going to forget what happened, if you don't interview them within 48 hours, it's just a bad idea in terms of investigative practices. And Charlie Hales negotiated to get that 48-hour rule taken out of the contract. So to his credit, that was you know, he did listen to the community and get rid of that one thing, but it was at, at a cost where, as far as we can tell, the PPA ended up with about $9 million worth of raises for the PPA, the, you know, the rank-and-file officers. It wasn't the union itself, but the you know, officers as, as employees of the police uh, bureau uh, ended up with $9 million more and got rid of this 48-hour rule. There was a, a hitch to that, though, which doesn't surprise me at all, which is that then the district attorney said, oh, well, if you interview the officer within 48 hours, that could destroy our ability to prosecute them criminally, which, of course, never happens anyway. Um, so you need to wait till the grand jury is over. That's, you know, essentially would have turned it from a 48-hour rule into like a 48-day rule, we joked. Uh, and it wasn't until a police policy or what they're called directives came out the following summer that we realized that this behind-the-scenes uh, negotiation had gone on to basically put the not only put the 48-hour rule in back in without it being in the contract, but extend it by you know however long it takes to do a hold a grand jury. Luckily, the city council overrode the bureau, and that is you know, the policy now is that it has been inter interviewed within 48 hours. Uh, so th this year, um, I guess well 2020, and then extending into this year, the city has sort of made what uh, I believe is the unprecedented uh, step of hiring a third-party labor negotiator. Um, yeah, no, that's never happened before. Do you, to from what you've observed, do you think that that will make a significant difference? Well, we don't know what the end product is going to look like. Certainly, in terms of how the negotiations have started this year, last year we didn't, you know they didn't get past the ground rule, so it was hard to know what was going to happen. But basically, they, they kind of laid out on the table a lot of concerns the community had um, that the city is asserting that they have the right to decide who does the investigations, which presumably means also including deadly force cases, that um, they get to decide who does uh, the disciplining, which is something that the new oversight system that was uh, passed in the ballot measure, the uh, 26-217 in November, um, that the new board is going to have the power to discipline. I mean, assuming that... There aren't other hurdles other than the contract. Um, that's what the city is saying they're going to have. Now, we, nobody knows what's going to happen at the end, like I said, because if the city has one version of a contract and the union has, a, I use that term loosely, the union has another one, and they can't come to an agreement, then their arbitrator gets to decide which contract to go with. So it's not like a middle ground or a negotiation or a mediation that goes on. It's like one contract or the other. So if, if it ends up in mediation or in the arbitration and the PPA w prevails, then all these uh, efforts by the outside attorney are for naught, except that it, you know the city 
made a show to the public that they were trying to make these things happen. So it's you know it's hard to know what the out end outcome is going to be, but we're, of course we're hoping and we're supportive of the city doing everything it can to make sure uh, as much of the hindrances that are in that contract get pulled out uh, before this thing is signed. All right, um, and and sort of towards that end, the city has made some pretty specific um, demands this year, uh, and. I'll be totally transparent. I'm getting this from reporting in the Portland Mercury. Um, but the, the among them, like limiting secondary employment for officers, education requirements for promotions, um, allowing performance evaluations to include discipline, reconsidering the embarrassment clause, and uh, allowing the city to decide who disciplines officers. Do you see any of those as... Uh, likely to succeed or fail based on, uh, you know, just what you know of the Portland Police Association? Well, you know, what, the, what, what we've learned in the past, the $9 million that I mentioned before that the TPA got out of the city to get rid of the 48-hour rule uh, is kind of where their hearts are, that they're looking out for the bottom line for themselves and their members. So, uh, if the city had something to give them financially, they might be willing to give up some of these things, but there might be, you know, just a, a place where they're not willing to go. And the PPA at the last session on February 10th, at the last public session, surprisingly, in my opinion, uh, asked for time on the agenda when they knew that the public was watching to talk about how they felt the ballot measure had been falsely put forward to the people of Portland it says that they shall be able to discipline officers, and yet it also says that, that this entire thing has to be negotiated with them. In other words, they feel like it was uh, uh, there were, the city was flim-flamming the public because by not saying that it had to be negotiated, people didn't realize that that might not be possible if the uh, contract doesn't work out in the favor of the city. Um, I think that's a, a weak argument, especially because they had every ability to file a grievance about how the ballot measure was written before it went to print and before people voted on it. So the fact that they think people were duped by that is, you know, it's kind of a moot point. But I think it kind of shows where they're coming from, that they're going to try to find ways to undermine the will of the people. So it's more likely than not that unless the city comes up with some um, carrot um, to tempt the PPA to give these things up, but they're not going to do it. And despite hundreds of people, thousands of people marching in the streets all summer long last year, uh, demanding justice and demanding accountability, uh, I, you know, the, the PPA claims to be members of our community, but really less than a third of the officers live in the city of Portland, and you know, they're, this is their job, and they're actually kind of afraid of the public, in my opinion. Uh, regarding the embarrassment clause, um, that uh, if the city has reason to reprimand or discipline an officer, it shall be done in a manner at least likely to embarrass the officer before others or the public. Um, I was looking around in old contracts, and that has that language has been there almost unchanged since the first contract in 1969. It's not something that really pops up in other police contracts east of the Cascades, which is odd to me. Do you have any insight into where that language comes from and why it would be in a, a public employee contract? 
Well, it's interesting you bring that particular item up. Well, for one thing, the PPA referenced that in the last session without saying what it was. They said, what you're saying about Section 20.2, we disagree with that. And I had to look it up, even though I'm pretty familiar with it. That was that's the embarrassment clause. Uh, that they, you know, they feel very strongly that that needs to stay in there, even though the city wants to pull it out. Uh, I actually, for completely unrelated reasons, came across a tiny little item in an old Copwatch newsletter from 2009 that's saying in December of 2008, the police association filed a grievance over what's now called the police review board, an internal review board to the police bureau saying that they were in violation of the embarrassment clause um, because of how they were reviewing uh, officer possible misconduct, I think because there were community members on the board. Even though they're sworn to confidentiality, and up until 2008, we we didn't even know the names of those people. Uh, it's, it's just, frankly, there are times when I can see why you might want to do that for public employees generally um, in some situations. But I think when if a person is being disciplined for their interaction with a member of the public, regardless of who it is, whether it's an officer or a customer service agent in the Parks Department or whatever, <laughs> that should be public knowledge. Um, and when you're, you're talking about people who have the ability to harm or kill community members and often get away with it, um, the fact that they're going to be disciplined for misconduct in cases like that is incredibly important. Uh, and so when they, they they think it's embarrassing to be held accountable for what they when they harm people in the community, that that's kind of an outrage. Uh, it's kind of related to a state law that prevents the release of information about misconduct investigations unless the officer's been found um, guilty of the misconduct and then even then there's you know, it has to be in the public interest, and we say it's always in the public interest to release that information. On that list of things that the city was asking for was allowing the city to decide who disciplines officers. And I had some trouble finding a specific clause or series of clauses that prevents the city from doing that in the contract. Do you know if that is something that is in directives or state law or that just kind of arises from uh, things like the embarrassment clause and the officer's bill of rights. I'm sorry, so it's a part that prevents people from doing what? I'm, that prevents the, the city from deciding who disciplines officers. Or um, Oh, yeah. No, well, I, I, I do not know where that is based. Um, here's my interpretation, uh, how we've interpreted that at CopWatch, and, and it relates to our current oversight system. Um, the, what the contract does say is that when an officer is being investigated for misconduct, the city has to tell them the name and rank of the officer doing the investigation. That implies that the investigation is being done by somebody within the bureau. The, investi the uh, interviews have to happen within a police bureau building. So at this point, when independent police review, so-called, is doing their independent investigations of misconduct cases, A, they have to happen inside a police facility, and B, there has to be somebody from the police bureau there to order the officer to answer the question um, because the IPR is not part of the police bureau. They're not in the chain of command, and they cannot compel the officer to testify. So I think and this, so when the IPR was trying to overcome that and ask the city to change their, you know, the city code that allows them to do these investigations so that they can compel officer testimony, 
what ended up happening is they, they backed down and came up with this cockamamie system where you know the IPR has to count on internal affairs to compel the officers to testify because again you know going all the way up the chain of command to the chief and then to the police commissioner the IPR is underneath the auditor and so they don't have power directly over these employees so I think it's all related back to that like who who disciplines them relates back to that however uh, what the IPR was trying to rely on was a power that was that is in, invested right now in the Bureau of Human Resources. So regardless of which bureau you're in, the Bureau of Human Resources can do an investigation on you and discipline you. Um, so it seems to me that there is probably a loophole that can be uh, opened up so that the new system can be given the similar power to that. And then, but but we but it would be best to remove that part of the contract that says they have to be given the name of the, and rank of the officer. Okay, there's a lot of focus on the contract because it's um, it's just been such a point of contention in the past, and as you mentioned, the, the physical on occasion, like in 2016 at City Hall. Um, there's other things that need to change in order for the new oversight board to function as planned. Um, do you see uh, any uh, bills currently in the state legislature that would allow that to move forward or things that should be but are not? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't pay that, much, that fine detail attention to everything that's going on in Salem. My um, suggestion to the people who've been working on these bills is that they should make it so that any police oversight board in the state has the authority to compel officer testimony, investigate deadly force cases, um, discipline officers, and publicly reveal the findings. Um, I don't know that there's any one bill or even a series of bills that collectively would make all those things happen. The one bill I've heard about is a bill that's being push forward to kind of retroactively say uh, if anybody passed a ballot measure after July 2020 that establishes a police oversight system, you don't have to necessarily negotiate the terms of that oversight system with a collective bargaining unit. And I don't know if that's going to fly legally. I think it would be much smarter to you know like just enshrine the powers in, in state law. So uh, I'm not sure you know, hopefully you, you can do some more digging around to people who are actually paying more attention to the legislature and get more information oh, yeah, yeah. whether that's happening. Um, well, uh, so we've covered a lot of ground, and there's about 10 minutes till 6. Um, I just wanted to make sure, is there um, anything you'd like to add uh, to what you've said that I that I might have missed? Aside from uh, well, vast I just, swaths I, I of I want to point out that, you know, I, I talked about Port Scottwatch has had partners on this in the past, and this, uh, in the last two years, kind of the, the lead organization uh, taking uh, whatever point on the police association contract has been Unite Oregon. They've been doing a great job. Um, so they we launched a campaign in September of 2019 around this. Um, then in October that year, Commissioner Hardesty invited people from Campaign Zero to talk in front of city council. That was also unprecedented. Um, that um, those were the folks who came, who who made a point that you said about most police contracts don't have the embarrassment clause in them. The um, in November and December of that year, Commissioner Hardesty and the mayor put together 
public forums where people came forward to express their concerns and among the biggest concerns had to do with investigating deadly force and other accountability issues which are among the top items in the community letter that Unite Oregon and, and we and other groups signed on to in the first place. And then they hired this outside attorney. So there's been a lot of uh, very positive movement uh, in, on, in terms of community involvement and the city taking this much more seriously than it have in the past. Um, and then uh, that's why it was really surprising when the one-year extension happened last summer. We didn't really know much about it, just sort of popped up on the city council agenda. Uh, but and now we, you know, we've so there's another community letter that got circulated ahead of this set round of uh, negotiation that you can find on the Unite Oregon website. It's, I think it's uniteoregon.org/policing. Okay. Um, we also have a copy of it on our website. We're kind of administratively mirroring it because um, sometimes Unite is unable to update their website quickly. Um, so that, yeah, so if people want to check that out, um, that's uh, that'll give you an idea of some of the things. Oh, I do have one more other thing, and then yeah. I have to go. So the other thing is that a part of the contract that was that was discussed at the last meeting that we have not identified in you know all these years of doing this work and these last two years with this intense kind of community working group looking at it is that when the policies or directives are finalized before they get enshrined into you know basically the rule books the PPA gets the last word. So even though when the Department of Justice came here and investigated the police for excessive use of force, they said you have to let the community weigh in on these directives, and they've been doing that, it doesn't matter what the community says because ultimately the PPA gets the last say. And as long as that's happening, no matter what system we have for accountability, if the directives say, oh, well, the officer has wide discretion about when they can use force, then it's going to be very hard to ever find them out of policy because the policy is so broadly written. And the city essentially is getting ready to sign an agreement to put that back in the contract exactly as it's written right now. So we raised that uh, concern with the city, and I'm not sure uh, whether they're going to backtrack. Once you make a tentative agreement, and labor negotiations it could be called bargaining in bad faith if you switch your mind, but that's going to be very crucial. Uh, and uh, let me just also add that the new board, once it gets put in place under the charter, has the power to order changes to be made to the directives. And if the uh, police bureau refuses to do it, they, the board can turn to city council and have the city council put them in place. But if that part of the contract still remains, then even city council can be undermined by this contract. And that's just something that we can't uh, can't tolerate going forward. I've been speaking with Dan Handelman of Portland Cop Watch. Uh, Dan, thank you very much for talking to me today. Sure, thanks for having me on.